0: All right. Uh, welcome back to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior podcast. I've got Matt Higgins today. You guys probably most famously know him from Shark Tank. Um, we just had about a 30-minute conversation, uh, some off the record. So we basically had a podcast before the podcast. Hey, Matt, welcome, and thank you for joining us.
1: Wow, thanks for having me. Don't
0: worry. We saved some good stuff for this. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we did, and we've actually found some good things to bring up. So, Matt, i got to ask you up front. What do you think your hit record is in terms of – companies being put in front of you uh, of whether you think they're going to succeed or not? Uh,
1: I think my hit record, you mean how many actually will succeed or how right? are The
0: ones you choose, the ones you say, yeah, that one's going to be successful. And then the ones you pass on that go on to be highly successful. What do you think your hit hit rate is?
1: That's so funny. I I actually think it's not so much my hit rate. It's whether or not I had the courage to actually act on what I know was true and whether I listened to some other voice in my head or judgment. So I don't know, man, I'm going to say probably 20%.
0: In terms of acting on it you know really yeah Wait, let, me, let me ask you this because i know everyone within your space has a story of god damn it had i only invested in that company oh, like that. just something just didn't smell right or maybe it wasn't my passion it didn't feel right what's what what was that uh unicorn that you just passed up on that you, you
1: okay did? so uh that's a great story talking about my book uh, burn the boats um uh, airbnb so brian Chesky's the ceo of airbnb everything about that company told me uh, that that he was going to do what he ended up doing right but there was a moment in time when the company was trying to break through all the regulations in different settings right and so yeah. we met with him in my office with my partner Steve Ross is one of the largest developers in the country if not the largest right and he, and he had Brian in the room and Rightfully so was sort of talking about why it was bad for New York and, you know, giving him the speech from a developer's perspective. And I remember thinking, like, while that may be true from a vertical of a business, you know what I mean? But, you know, holistically, I don't think it's going to matter. Right. Like he's going to figure it out. He's going to get the regulations changed. He's going to build a massive business. And we ended up passing. And I, I remember thinking like we're passing for the wrong reason, like it doesn't matter how we feel. And that's, I think, a big mistake investors will make. It's like you tend to sort of bring your myopic focus to make a judgment instead of disassociating. And you're saying, well, it may not work for you, but it's going to work for most. And it's going to be a big business So we stupidly passed on airbnb i put it in the book to hold myself accountable it's funny that you bring this up it's one of my most paid i could have retired i wouldn't even be talking to you right now if i just did not check i'd be in the cayman islands you know
0: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't retire <laughs> you know what that is the biggest fucking fallacy is like if so i just true. had 20 know, million if i had 20 million dollars no, i it's would total, uh, no, no, I just, I feel, uh no i feel
1: completely unsuccessful so it really doesn't matter how much is in the bank
0: yeah so uh a buddy of mine uh who actually he owns a company called Icon and i think they got the contract with uh this this guy is just the nicest guy just a disruptor and innovator he created a company called Icon and they basically uh what's the word it's almost 3d print houses he got the contract for the lunar base with uh with NASA but of course he's in a circle of guys that are all Multi-millionaires to the tune of 60 million, if not uh up to, to up to five hundred thousand. And one of his buddies had a vodka, I won't say the the the, the company, but they got bought out and he basically made a hundred million. And my buddy asked him, he's like, What are you gonna do now? You could do whatever you want in life and just and you know, relax. He said, Well, I want what my other buddy has, because he has two hundred million. Hmm. And I, I I find that very interesting. And I don't think it's greed.
1: I'm it's- amazed that he admitted it, by the way. I mean, I I kudos to him for admitting something so gluttonous, but I, and I don't,
0: is, is it gluttonous or is it like, that's just the next challenge. I don't know. Do I have I, what it takes. Well, I only say gluttonous.
1: Well, and I guess I'm making a judgment cause it's not how I'm wi- wired. I, I'm wired for the pursuit, right? The whole purpose of my book is that I do think that human beings, they think that we're pursuing winning or, or what the joy of living is truly in the striving. So I'm, I'm in it for the perpet- perpetual pain. And discomfort. I'm not in it for the byproduct, which is the money, but that's easy to say when you already have a good amount of it. I'm also not in it to compete with anybody else. I think that's pathetic. I don't compete with anybody but Matt Higgins. So, you know, like, I don't let that creep into my head about what somebody has or not, because you know what I love accumulating. You could appreciate this given you've done something that so few people in the country have ever done or could have done. Right. I like accumulating things that money can't buy. Your money can't buy you a spot on Shark Tank and money can't buy you a spot on Faculty of Harvard. So I don't care how much money somebody has. Go do those hard things.
0: Yeah, no, know. You're right. Um, you know what I found along the way is like the destination. You think it's going to provide all this joy and it doesn't. It doesn't. Or it's not the joy that you think it's going to provide. Uh, I, you know, uh, I told you earlier about this 777 that we just did. Again, everyone in the world said we couldn't do it. It can't be done. We did it, but Within, I think, 10 minutes of, of doing it, we, we just sort of shrugged our sh- shoulders and went back to enjoying the, uh, the camaraderie of the guys around us. And like, we're waiting for the, uh, the world record certificates to, uh, uh, to arrive. And I know what I'm going to do with that world record uh, certificate, and I'm going to post it on uh, social media. Um, it, it, they're meaningly meaningless uh, to us. Right. And We're already talking about, right. hey, what's the next fucking challenge? What's right. the I- next I- thing? Right. I, I think the sooner you accept that in life, especially young
1: people, the happier you'll be. I write that in a book about the melancholy that marathon uh, winners experience, that Olympians experience. And the reason is, is because it's not what we're ch- Anybody who's been at to the top of the mountain realizes there's not much to see. It's the, you like looking up, not looking down. And so I, I fortunately accepted that really early. A little bit like, you know, when Eli- when Eliza says to Hamilton, why do you write like you're running out of time? Like, I just realized, you know what, I'm on the clock and I'm just going to keep accumulating <laughs> difficult experiences. But it really is so meaningless. Like it just doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't satisfy
0: anything, which is sort of sad, but also, okay. Yeah. You know, that, that, that is definitely, if we had a psychologist here, he'd, he'd, he'd describe it. as some personality flaw. I wonder that, what do you, that, you
1: know, I, it's funny you say that because I think you're perfectly fine and you think I'm probably perfectly fine. So screw the psychologist, but what a psychologist say that that's wrong as a Buddhist would probably say it's not. So I don't know. Maybe they would, maybe they we're well, well adjusted.
0: Let, 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 let's go here. Have you ever heard, you know, I'm in the pursuit of balance. I'm sure nobody, nobody says I'm, I, I want to be completely fucking unbalanced. It's that's, that's ludicrous. Yeah. I want to be unregulated. Yeah. yeah. I would. but <laughs> you know, I had, uh, uh, Terrell Owens on and I said, well, how did you achieve balance? And he's like, it was almost like the, uh, Allen Iverson moment. He's like, practice, practice. Are we talking about practice? He's like, balance. Bal- what? He's like, What are you talking about? When it comes to high performance, there is no balance. So I've started to shift. My, 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 my view of like, there is beauty and disharmony and you just have to find how all the things in your life, business, family, uh, how they just sort of link together, even though there's a disharmony when you're trying to achieve, uh, call it what you will trying to achieve greatness in your eyes. Yeah, what are, I mean, what are your thoughts on that, man? Well, no, I
1: 100% agree. I mean, look, at the, I, I like the word extraordinary because if you break it down, it's extraordinary, mm-hmm. right? So extraordinary things re- require extraordinary effort. So I'm actually never in pursuit of balance. I also resist habituation except to the extent it makes life more efficient. Very few areas of my life are actually habituated because my mind needs time to roam because I'm doing impossibly hard things. I wrote this book, I'm working on making it a bestseller, and my own TV show. I do very disparate hard things in unconnected industries. And so my mind needs to be as creative as possible. So very few things are habit. I know that's contradictory to what a lot of the advice people get, but I need a degree of chaos to be uh, successful. So I'm not in, in pursuit of balance, I'm in pursuit of intermissions. You know, little, little, little breaks and then I return to chaos.
0: I just had uh Stefan Falk, who's a, a famous McKinsey and executive performance coach. He just wrote a book called intrinsic motivation, uh, learn how to love your work. And he did, he actually said that he said, you know, there's been this overemphasis on the power of habits, which he's saying is not a bad thing, like small things like getting up at 5.00 AM and maybe getting your workout in are great. Yeah, but he said, great. when he said, if you continually do things the same way through the same lens, you start to actually find dissatisfaction and it kills innovation and disruption. So um, I, I, I love that you say that. Well, you just gave the gun one good one. So I've been trying to audit myself because I do
1: feel I'm teetering on chaos. You know, when I do something really hard that requires, like I've been, I've been, I, I get up every day at 4 a.m. and I work on this book till midnight, right? And so I'm on, the, I'm, I'm, I'm on the brink of death at the moment as we talk. This might be my last interview. So I'm trying to restore a tad bit of balance. So the one you just mentioned is the one that is absolutely irrefutable. I refuse to allow myself now to turn my phone on until I get to the gym. And I just hit it. And then now the whole time, I'm like, I got to turn the phone on. (laughs) And so that's using the power of habit to, you know, to make me do something.
0: But other than that, I I don't do many things. Who's your measuring stick for whether you're maybe, you know, the wheels are about to fall off. Is it you? Is it family members? Or are are you pretty in tune? With where you're at mentally? I mean, I mean, I made the single greatest decision of
1: my life. I uh, got, had gotten divorced and a uh, degree personally decimated on many levels, right? Uh, and had to rebuild my self-esteem. But I ended up um, uh, meeting my wife uh, online, actually. And... Uh, she's the greatest force multiplier I've ever encountered and truly the most regulated, talented human being. So people are like, who's your mentor? I'm like, that's my wife. Martin. Who do you admire them? Yeah. This is her. So she, but she is willing to go the distance too. She comes up against the edge of total chaos and can handle it. So if she's sounding the alarm, we, I know we're totally, definitely screwed. So that that is like, but you know, her sleep cycles as it gets, becomes dysregulated like mine. Like I start seeing her take on water and then, and then that's it. And, other than that i don't i don't listen to anybody else because unless they're doing it and they know what it looks like to do it it's like you can't possibly tell me like unless you're working on writing a book at the same time as teaching at harvard you know so yeah that's the
0: honest answer it's just her or myself that's that that's that's pretty accurate uh <laughs> i i would be lying to you if i didn't tell you my wife was uh uh in tears and yelling this morning about uh the pace what, at which what'd you uh, do go i want to hear it, it uh, gotta- it's just We we just got back from this triple seven. I took off the next week. It just my my body's not uh, recuperating very well. And she's like, "You just can't do this." And I'm like, "Oh, I know I can't do this, but I will do this." Uh, Thank thank (laughs) you for the input. That's a conversation, and then I'll
1: I'll provoke. I'm like, "What do you do? You think I'm crazy? Do you think this is crazy?" And she's like, "Nope, didn't say that." If
0: you're good with it, just saying. Starting to look a little. Let's be honest. You know, everyone acts a little differently when you're courting someone. That's fair and the cool then and
1: the cool guy yeah,
0: yeah yeah and then things start to you know be exposed as you date and then you know after you put a ring on it uh for engagement you know you show a little more and then i think after marriage there's you know the honeymoon phase re- re- wears off Although, and you completely show your well, full this, utter self well this is why i 100 percent agree with you caveat this is
1: why i'm convinced that my wife is a russian spy because she has perfected that. She she was the cool girl during courtship and remains so as the wife. And I'm like, either a, this is a very complicated RICO investigation, you're undercover like FBI, or you're a Russian spy. Because she's, man, we're 10 years in, I'm like, when are you going to grow tired of me? This is like, this is crazy. <laughs> we're like Thelma on Louise, we're going to drive right off the cliff, you know, if, we, if somebody doesn't rein it in, but you know, fortunately, and this, I love that we're talking about this because we don't talk about it enough in business. If you no country, no person has ever won a two-front war. If you have somebody in your foxhole is not on your team, you will fail. You know, no matter what.
0: <laughs> well, it was, you, so. Little, I, little, I, I know.
1: I know. Too, so I'm sorry to enter uh, into right no, 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 no. It,
0: it, it, the parallels between business and uh, and war or military are are so closely aligned; it's not even funny. Yeah. And, and and one of the things too, I had a great professor. This guy is uh he's a longtime professor at, at uh the University of Texas. Um and he was a Vietnam pilot and uh actually wow. shot down twice in one day, which I, who the hell gets if I get shot down and I live, I'm probably gonna take the day off. He got yeah. back in a helicopter. Uh you know, uh, you know, uh, and he talked about how the, the modern style of Business management was derived from the military, especially post-World War II, where almost everyone served. But I know you're referring to Napoleon and, uh, and Hitler, amongst a lot of others, yeah. who lost on two fronts. But uh, the good old US of A, we, di- we did it once. We did it once. We did it well. And, and we probably would never succeed at it again. But um, I, I'm so glad yeah. you're honest about meeting your your, your wife online. Uh, you know, a lot of people have comments on that. Hey, I met my wife online. Uh, you know what I love about these these apps? Is it there's, there's, there's an efficiency and effectiveness to it,
1: because oh especially
0: it. for guys that have very little time and you're getting access to people in this, this, this instant men or women that you wouldn't traditionally run into at a bar. And I think that's freaking awesome. I love this topic because I actually have
1: her profile somewhere because I was just talking about this the other day. What's great about going online is you get to sift through reams of data and you're using the right head, you know what I mean, and making that decision. And so you're using your mind and saying, like, what do you what do you think intellectually? Right. Like, what is this person right for me? My I always joke with my wife, like you put together the perfect composite sketch of the of a, of a cool girl. And I remember when we first on our first date, I said, OK, if this profile is not aspirational and it's actually true, I was like, we're going to have a really good life. And we never had a bad day since. And whereas if I had met somebody in a bar, you're responding to, you know, chemicals or like, or the alcohol or I think online is amazing. Uh, You know, maybe, you know, stereotyping, but women, I think, tend to be a little more transparent than men are. So maybe it's easier for a guy to find a partner online. But I'm so glad I found her online.
0: I, I, I just go by, you know, sort of just swipe. Swipe left. I just swiped left. Or is it, is it right? Which one was, I swiped right on everything and it was a process of elimination <laughs> from there. Whoever, uh, whoever responded back. I'm, I'm kidding, but um, <laughs> take what I, you I get. do take what you get. Uh, you know, Hey, what did uh, Gretzky say? You, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you never take. So I just take a hundred percent. Let's talk about uh, your book. Cause I, I love this burn the boats is such a great quote that we in the military know so well. Uh, I know it's been uh, accredited to Cortez, um, where he had 600, basically, uh, I think soldiers, 100 sailors, uh, and basically told him to burn the, what was it? Six or 16 ships. Yeah. Uh, right. To, to, to make sure that they were 100% 15, 15. focused. Yeah. 15, it's,
1: 19. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, this core well, so forgive me for telling, you know, the audience and you master of the obvious stuff, but um uh, I've actually, what I was fascinated, we know it is Cortez and Cortez was kind of a bad guy, right. So it's been vilified. Yeah. So, but I'm actually not using it in that context. What Mm -hmm. I found fascinating is if you go back to the beginning of recorded history, including the Old Testament with the ancient Israelites, Yes. if you go back to the Chinese in in, uh, 207 BC, they had a, a general there, same exact story. Every culture in every century on earth has the same hero's journey, where when a military strategist has their back up against the wall and is outnumbered, they do two things. They eliminate their retreat and they eliminate their food supply so they have no other choice. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. I saw Rex Ryan give a speech in 2011 when I was running the business of the Jets. and uh, We worked together and uh, he was in the room with the players. We were facing the Steelers. We were an underdog and he gives us, he's a big bear of a guy His jowls are animating. He gives this speech about Cortez. He burned the boats. These are all like young kids. So they had no idea. But the next day they won, they won, obviously. And the next day the Times does an article and they asked a bunch of guys, you know, why do you think you won? And go, honestly. We heard about this cortez guy burning the boats and we just we just achieved another level and it stuck with me that these young kids were crediting this notion so i i wanted to write a book that was devoted to why do we reject this idea that to be truly successful you have to sort of be all in because this this title deliberately provokes a good percentage of people who say matt you're being irresponsible like i gotta pay the rent i gotta pay the bills if you read my book that's actually not what i argue. I am one of the most anxious, nervous, not, I'm one of the, uh, the most, you know, uh, uh, right. You, you understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah. I have anxiety too, but I process risk at the beginning of my journey so that when I'm going all in, I can remember, hey, Matt, you already thought about what's the worst could happen. Get that out of your head and you got to focus on being successful. So I wanted to write a book that wasn't as simplistic as like burn the damn boats. It was, what does it take to burn the metaphorical boats in your life that hold you back internal and external so you can commit to your potential?
0: Yeah. You, you just said something, uh, you know, anxiety. I, I, I think, you know, my wife is getting annoyed of the fact I come home and I'm like, we've got to tighten down the buckles. Know, I, the budget. I, we, we, I do the craziest things. We just got rid of an apartment. I'm like, babe, the
1: world is coming to an end. I'm positive this time. We, but she's like, I think you're doing okay. I'm like, ah, but it could
0: be gone tomorrow. We got to sell it, everything. Well, she gets annoyed. Cause the next day I come home and I'm like, we're going to do so well. She's like, what it is it? Pick a lane. Cause I'm getting tired of this yo-yo. Um, no, 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 no. But it, it is interesting. I love that you the, just said that, by the way, because I, you know,
1: we can be so macho and just project that like, this is all about confidence. No, we're fallible human beings. We have anxiety. We're taking
0: risks. It's scary. It's about handling that risk and handling that anxiety, managing it. You, you know, I, some people view calling other people out as unprofessional. And I, I can see that, that, that argument. I'm not calling anyone out here. I, I, what I'm saying is, I've seen some people, Matt, and you know, with social media, everyone has a microphone these days, whether mm. they have credibility or not. I do look at credibility. Why would I listen to this person? Oh, Matt clearly had a very, uh, you know, poverty stricken uh, uh, childhood worked himself out of, uh, you know, one, didn't even graduate, got his GED, worked his way out while taking care of his mother and has been so successful. I'm going to listen to this guy because this guy definitely has some breadcrumbs that he can lead uh, for me or leave behind to to success. But there are some people that put out just this, like, this bad guidance of, you know, all in all the time, 110% grind into these, almost these platitudes, which I I I think are great and have have merit, but... Very few leaders like yourself actually show the soft side, uh, and you just talked about anxiety. People wouldn't guess that. The soft side of y'all, and and I don't want to say the flaws, but yeah, hey, I do do worry constantly all the time as well. People don't hear enough of that. That vulnerability, I think, is the best way to describe it. I love that you're saying that because it's one of my biggest threats to
1: be a little more explicit. I can't stand the Instagram heroes narrative where it's like you everyone manufactures or they had some type of vulnerability or trouble, but they rose like a phoenix. And now I'm going to tell you how I did it. It's like, wait a second. I'm regressing every single day. I wrote a book. I, I, I asked to write the shit out of my own book because it's aspirational. I can barely follow half my advice. I wrote a book so I could read it. <laughs> be like, what's the matter with you? Like, why, why are you still, you know, I like that. And, and I'm being honest about it. And I talk about how I went on Shark Tank. And I talk about how I impo- had imposter syndrome and people, somebody said to me the other day, they were like, why would you be that? That would have been the easiest thing I ever did. I was like, well, you never, you never did it. Number one, <laughs> number two, it's because I came from dirt. And, and I thought people could see through me and I'm sharing it because when you watch the tape of me on Shark Tank, you're like, that kid's a natural. It's like, well, that's not making a gift of myself. That's not useful. So I want to be useful to let you know. Actually, I was freaking out because of course I'm freaking out. I was, was a high school dropout with Mark Cuban. Now I, I I performed and that's what winners you know do. But with, with this book, it's a little bit of a retort to the nonsense, sunny Instagram posts that are not even actionable to be like, what does failure really look like? What does anxiety look like? Let me also share with you a detail. I don't want to share about my divorce and how it leveled my self-esteem. Let me talk about my testicle getting cut off and what that did to me, my sense of being a man. Like, you know what? And I find guys when they, or people, women, when they achieve this level, they want to package it. Okay. I'm done now. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not even, I, I regress all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You say imposter syndrome. And the amount of self doubt that I have, I think, well, one, it tamps down on my ego. And we all have egos to some degree, Um, but imposter syndrome, because I served and I I know, you know, one of, who I would consider a mentor in many ways. I didn't serve directly for him, but you know, you, you mentioned a seal in the book named Kurt. Can we say his name? Yeah. Kurt, Kurt Cronin, say loud. (laughs) Kurt Kurt Cronin who, uh, Kurt Cronin had these peers too. And I'll, I'll say their names one Chris Cussell fussell because he wrote the, he's the president of McChrystal group, general Stanley McChrystal's consulting group. I mean, these guys were all cut from the same cloth talk about an amazing group of mentors i served with uh you know uh, i am who i am because of the men and the women that i served with and how much they poured into me but uh kurt embodies what you're talking about you know he you know if people met kurt when they would never think he was a navy seal they're like wait this guy killed people for a living uh just his empathy his respect his kindness uh his humility are are off the uh the charts you live in a different world than I am, man. You've you've got some people that have a, have have built let's let's be honest, fuck you money. Uh amazing wealth. Do they still have that that some that semblance of, you know, kindness, respect, empathy, and humility that I'm talking about? Uh not entirely some do. Not, some do.
1: not like that. I I I tell you. Do the you best know. do? Uh not entirely. Not entirely. <laughs> to entirely. be honest. It depends on I find the best leaders do operational leaders, but a lot of people with fantastic wealth or breakout success don't really have to be operators. Frankly, one thing I do talk about in my book, which is interesting. I, I believe that self-awareness is the greatest arbitrage entirely when it's in somebody's control. Like you run to Barnes and Noble, you're looking for a book or you go to a Ted talk. We bypass, wait, how much can I actually unlock by looking within? And the reason why I have a cover of a paper boat on my cover, it's a little burning paper boat just to show you is uh Because uh, um, a lot of the issues that we need to deal with, the boats that we need to burn stem from childhood, these legacy issues that sort of make us happy. So so for the vast majority of people, if you want to achieve a degree of success, self-awareness, but there is another level of individuals like who are fantastically wealthy, billionaires, whatever. And I find a different recurring fact pattern. When they lose, when they win, they absorb that win. And it's like, it enhances their self-esteem and their ego and just makes them larger than life. When they lose, They simply expand the definition of what winning looks like to accommodate the loss, almost like they plan to lose. And and it doesn't at all knock them off their game, doesn't affect their self-esteem. They barely look at it. I'm neurotic when it comes to analyzing my failures. I want to look at it. I want to extract value from it. And then I kind of move on. But but I'm lying if I say it doesn't affect me. These individuals are not affected by it. It's almost like they have a reality distortion field like Steve Jobs. And I'm too intellectually curious to be that. I'll never be probably a multi-billionaire because I don't have that in me. But I'm just being honest. There's a level of delusion around certain types of successful people. They're not really narcissists per se, but they are able to ins- insulate and immunize themselves from failure in a way I couldn't possibly do. I think that's kind of genetic probably more than anything. But uh, really? it's just noting. Yeah. You you think it's, it's nature over. I really, I I think it's just so abnormal (laughs) to be so immunized from your own failure. I don't want to call anybody out, but I'm talking like stunning, breathtaking failures, hundreds of millions, like just shit that I'd be like, I can't even leave the house. I feel, you know, uh, uh, so crippled by it. And yet they're like, nah, I meant that. That was pretty, that was good. I'm glad that happened.
0: (laughs) I'm, I'm more like you. I've, I've ended up in the fetal position for, for a (laughs) whole day. Exactly. I mean, it's good to be
1: honest about it because to be honest, I don't want to be that way. I, I, am I'm too intellectually curious about why I do things. I love auditing my failures and figure out, was it, was it knowable? Like when I, the thing that led to me ultimately failing, was it knowable so that I could next time try to avoid it? That's the part that I'm most curious about. And most of the time it was knowable. I am at the intersection of my own failure. The universe gave me multiple opportunities to course correct, and I did not take them, which makes me happy because it means the universe is benevolent. But I am usually at the center of my own failure. There's not a lot of happenstance happening.
0: That so you know, I, I believe ultimately the greatest mentor in life is not a person, even though they're they're highly impactful in our lives. Yeah, it's if, as you say, you if you actually go through the process of not hiding and auditing your failures, failure is the greatest mentor in life. If you have the ability to candidly say, oh, yeah, I fucked this up, and I, I did it badly, and this is I what I need agree. to fix going And I agree. Forward. That's
1: what's so useless about social media because we we summarize and we sort of fetishize this idea of failure, but we're not honest. Every one of us would like to avoid it it's there's a distinction between wishing to avoid it and wishing to win versus wishing to extract value from it when it happens and deciding that it's not useless. And the other point is the most successful people I meet, mean, no matter what the, the number one quality they do have, that is typical. Now I'm not talking about outliers is uh, the ability to iterate that they are the most iterative creatures. They, they, in other words, they just figure it out and no PowerPoint looks, you know, similar on day one as it does in year five, describing the business. And so along the way, the ones who, who succeed are the ones who iterate. So when I'm looking at a deal or assessing a founder, I'm trying to determine, do they have the capacity to make course corrections along the way? And so what I'm looking for is self-awareness because then they don't need me to intervene. They intervene themselves. Their brain intervenes. I don't need Matt to tell them they're about to die or their product sucks or that, that employee toxic. They take care of it themselves. And so um, and that's why I go back to self-awareness. But those outlying successful people, they actually don't have a lot of it. They're immunized from it and and lacking self-awareness immunizes it. It's such a nuanced topic. I wish I could do a whole book on it, but uh, you know, like, so I'm caveating my point on self-awareness because there is a level of greatness that actually doesn't possess
0: it. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, You know, so this one behind me is my second book. Um, Did you find writing the book to be more cathartic for you than maybe, maybe it was intended to be impactful for others? I did. I really I, I,
1: I found it incredibly cathartic because similar to you, I'm, I'm so hard on myself and I'm constantly trying to make sure I'm being accurate. Like, is this true? Do I live with this? How do I now asterisk this subpoint to make sure that I'm not hurting somebody by acting like I got to figure it out? I mean, mm-hmm. like it really. And then engineering an outcome. I think a lot of um, successful people who write books think it's a vanity project. And I approach this by saying, one, nobody gives a shit about your story. Because they're busy and they don't and they and they shouldn't. And two, when you spend thirty bucks on a book, like you're you're doing it to create value. I have an obligation to give you at least a five x return on that thirty bucks. Yeah. So how do I? It's how I approach my class at Harvard too. How do I give you a five x return? And so I found it was such an act of imposed discipline to try to hew as closely the truth as possible. The parts that were not true about my book are when I airbrushed other people. And I felt like that's a fair choice to make. You know, and sometimes it felt inauthentic when I read the stories and I have people who know the people in the book like, but you don't mention when they're like, I know, (laughs) but (laughs) I'm extracting, I only do that to myself. I don't do that to others. And so it was really cathartic, but you appreciate this. Selling it has been the most humbling experience. Like, I'm actually – I feel so in touch with all the people who've worked for me over the years who are sales salespeople because the it is so grueling and grinding that I, I'm grateful to have experienced just how hard it is to sell your own product, which I've never done in my life. I've never sold anything. I only own things, you know?
0: So I'm grateful for that, although beat up. I, you see, here's the thing I can't do. I Like, I've done no promotion for this thing whatsoever. Um, I, there's just something that feels – but is that because of your the sort of self doubt in you is kind of is, is undermining? Uh, it's it's it, it just it's a one this book uh which I focused on I told even when I I I come in and speak about leadership and culture for companies it's through the lens of third parties or people I knew I tell their stories I told about what I watch great leaders do not necessarily what I've done but if I do talk about me whatsoever it's about my wildly embarrassing failures. Hmm. Of where I should have known better, and and I did learn a valuable lesson. But it's it's very hard. This is what I have noticed. It's I I will never be comfortable with selling myself. It well, just let's doesn't stay feel with that right for a
1: second, because my book yeah. follows a similar pattern to yeah. your book.
0: How much do you think that
1: that's our own self doubt imposter syndrome, uh, you know, creeping into our hi. writing style? Hi, hi. hi. But it's you know I. what? But can I be honest? I'm okay with that. Like, I don't really give a shit about my story. I just don't. I care. I look at myself as a vessel to transmit certain truisms about the universe. And I use, I look at the hard things I experienced watching my mother die, powerlessness. I look at that as useful only insofar as it inspires another individual to do something about it. I just not construct it that way. So while some of it is kind of, you know, ill at ease with my own accomplishments like you, I think I'm, I think I'm okay with it. It sounds like you're okay
0: with it too. Like whatever. If, if, if somebody is impacted by the book, like there is, I'll tell you what, the greatest return on investment is not what money comes from Amazon into the bank. It's when somebody sends an email and says, Hey man, I took away these two points. Thank you so much. I'm like, that warms me. It warms my soul. And I know you're going to get saying
1: that. Like, I, I honestly, I could not care. I mean, I don't let the bad reviews hurt. Right. Yeah. 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 But the object of the exercise is for a random person, maybe on the margins, who thinks the die is cast, reads my crazy story, because now you can't see me as the you know white, blue-eyed guy on Shark Tank who teaches at Harvard, who you presumed you know, grew up on third base. You're like, wow, you grew up in a roach motel, and yet yeah, you got here. If that person sees themselves in my book and they send me that email, it almost makes me want to pass out. It's so extraordinary. Like, it is. Everything else does not compare to that. When people say, why do you keep saying this is your most important project? I'm like... What's more important than reaching across the divide to a person sitting there who grew up in dysfunction, being like, damn, Matt, like, didn't think I could pull it off. But you gave me a reason. I love that you and I are talking like this. This is not hyperbole. This is not bullshit. Like, that is the single most important thing that I think I could ever do with my life. And sort of it completes the journey. So I can't wait till that happens. I'm so sick of like, you know, (laughs) waiting, (laughs) you know, like, I want the referendum to come back. Like, did it work? Did I succeed? Did I impact you? You know? I can't wait to read your book, by the way, because now I feel like if you can't sell yourself, I'm gonna fucking work hard to sell you.
0: Ah, <laughs> I, I appreciate that, uh, but But see, the problem is when you know guys like Kirk Cronin. Like I was an idiot compared to Kirk Cronin. That guy talks on a different level, and I'm like, what? Um, so I highly really out that. But let, 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 let's if you, if you don't mind for a few minutes, I want to get into sort of the the meat and meat and potatoes. Yeah. So you know, Sun Tzu talked about something similar. If you put a soldier on death ground. Uh, and they have no other option. They will fight like, like just banshees. Um, but if they feel like there's a, an opt out or an option and things get difficult, they'll go and execute that option, like surrender. So how are you, cause everyone always has an option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're an entrepreneur. You start a business, but you always have the option of just shuttering that business and going and get a job. What do you tell people in this book? How do you metaphorically? burn those options. You burn, burn, burn the ship. I think it's by opening one
1: it 's by proving to you what you just said, and because you 're in the military, you know this to be true, right, but you probably don't realize you do realize, but the vast vast majority of the population actually does not accept that premise, and the reason why is their amygdalas flashing like a cantaloupe, right so they're they're operating on fight or flight, and we don't we don 't realize that because we don 't talk openly about self awareness and why is your amygdala going crazy and like what did you go through so one it 's to prove to, to the, the, anybody reading this book it's not only objectively true in a military context. Let me give you science to sort of prove to you. Love it. There's a study and there's a study uh, in 2014 at a Wharton, which is a great study. They wanted to prove, is it really true that, you know, having a plan A will undermine, you know, plan, uh, having a plan B will undermine plan A. And they had a group of college students and one group of college students, they said, here's the objective and here's the reward. However, if you want to think about another way to get a snack, you know, feel free to. That was it, right? What they found is two interesting things. Not only did it make that group statistically less likely that they would ever achieve plan A, it it dramatically uh, ruined their motivation. They just didn't care as much anymore, right? So my first objective in the book is to demonstrate to you that the energy leakage of thinking there's another way to get what you want is actually the reason why you can't get what you want in life. That's number one. Two, we don't need life or death decisions to have the clarity of decision making. A reason why Sun Tzu and all these other military generals did what they did, it wasn't just about... Uh, you know, life or death, it was about clarity of decision making, we have only one option, right? And we grew up with this fallacy of choice, believing that having more choices is better. But we only are able to to harness the clarity of thinking when we're backs against the wall the purpose of my book is to show you can harness that clarity of decision making without your back being against the wall. And here's the process we need to analyze where are your boats coming from? What are the internal boats that you have? What are the external boats coming from on the internal side? Like I said, some of it's shame, but there are a lot of other things that creep Mm -hmm. into your psychology, right? Do you have that enemy in the foxhole, whatever external there are these subtleties in the corporate environment um, that are actually holding you back. For example, I talk about corporate um, withholders, it's the manager who knows that you're a pleaser and knows that the best way to keep you stay, uh, destabilized is to deny you the approval that you seek, the confirmation of your behavior, right? I try to articulate these sort of external forces that I think we don't put words to and then aggregate them all together and say, okay, these are your. this is your horizon of boats. You need to burn them. And then once you do, you will realize... Everything I've wanted is right there within reach. And this is what's been holding me back. Again, it's not as easy as that. And then big yeah. picture, you and I started our conversation talking this way. That is where the joy of life comes from. It's doing these hard, uncomfortable things and staying in this perpetual pursuit and, and sort of explaining why we're wired that way and how to, how to constantly stay in that journey, how to constantly burn more boats.
0: As you're talking, you know, and, and I don't want to make this political and it's not, but our education system, teaches the very objective subjects. They fear going into this objective. It's amazing how we do a disservice to a lot of our children and teenagers of giving them the attributes you're talking about in these, this book, which is to say another form of leadership development is completely devoid in our US education system. It um, is. Yeah. I mean, people without great mentors uh, and I'm sure your mom was, was vital to this process, exposed you. And it seems like we overprotect our children. I think the more you expose And in a, a woman asked me this, uh, with a client this week in uh, Michigan, she said, I get anxiety when, when I step into an uncomfortable situation. And she said, how do I get over that? I said, you expose yourself to it incrementally, incrementally. And I'm not saying like jump into the deep end at first. No, just put a, put a toe in and then talk, yeah. reflect, talk about how you felt. What, what, what truly is the problem? what is the scope of the problem once you're reset, dip two toes in until you're taking that leap into the deep end, and you no longer care? Um, it's, it's funny you
1: said that I talk in a book
0: about this idea of optimal anxiety, you try to articulate
1: yeah, the idea. No kidding, the, the toggle. Yeah, I have a whole chapter, I love what you just said. It's a, there's a, a study called the Yerkes dotson Law, where they first dissected in like 1920, whatever it was. Sort of what is the optimal balance between anxiety, and the reason why I included it is. Anxiety is not meant to be extinguished. It's, it's when, when properly calibrated, it's a feedback loop that gives you a biofeedback that you are actually doing something uncomfortable, but it can become paralyzing. So I offer myself embarrassingly, sometimes regrettably, the story of how I was paralyzed going on the set of Shark Tank. It was up for two days. And like you said, sitting on the stall of the shower, like, what am I doing? Again, it doesn't make sense to other people, but it's, but it's my anxiety, right? But how at the same time, when I went on Shark Tank the second time, Here's the problem. I already had the evidence that I had done well. I didn't have a care in the world. I had no anxiety. And I remember turning to my wife. I have a new problem. She's like, what is it? It's like, Too comfortable. I'm just not worried. I'm yeah. complacent. You know what I mean? And, and then she's so great. She, she's like, well, you always say this. Why don't you take the safety off and go weapons free? I'm like, I'm like yeah, that's right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it my way. <laughs> right. like, And I did. And I, when I was done after 10 hours, I was sitting on the chair and I said to him, babe, I don't think I'm ever coming back, but I left it all, you know, on the field and it was such a great feeling. So my reason I bring that up. Optimal anxiety gets you in the arena and you want to maintain it. If you have no anxiety, you actually subperform. If you're an elite performer, you need to switch your motivation system from anxiety to the pursuit of excellence. The reason I did great on the second time with charting is now I was pursuing to see what's the maximum capacity. How great can I be? And so I think, you know, excellence writ large is always about toggling between those two systems and knowing when you're about to go over the edge on anxiety and become completely paralyzed and crippled. Um, I love that you and I are talking about anxiety because I don't think men talk about it enough. And, and, like, we purport that we got shit figured out. You know, I don't have it figured out.
0: No, you know, the greatest lesson I got, and I actually smirked when the guy was talking about it. Uh, in, in my first book, The Talent War, how Special Operations Great Organizations Went on Talent, uh, we interviewed a guy named Jerry Boykin. And there's actually two great stories here. Jerry Boykin, General Jerry Boykin, was one of the first founding members of Delta Force amongst them. And he started talking about vulnerability and this emotional intimacy amongst uh, warriors. And I started to smirk. And of course, this is over video teleconference. And so he said, Mike, why, why are you laughing? And I'm like, I've never heard emotional inti- intimacy used with respect to, to some of the most lethal warriors in the world. And he's like, well, think about it. If you guys went out on a mission, you lost one of your brothers and one of your other brothers that made it back is over in the corner crying in tears like a, like a, a child. What would you do? I said, that's easy. I'd go wrap my arms around him and cry with him. Tell him, hey, we're going to get through this. Um, he's like, that's emotional intimacy. He's like high performing environments. Not all we've seen high performing environments that are cutthroat, but he says the best ones with the best cultures have this vulnerability, not victimhood, but where you can come up and say, without any fear of shame, say, Hey guys, I made a mistake. And here's what I learned. I don't want you guys to repeat the same mistake. And that's why I'm sharing it. People say, Hey, thank you i love that you said
1: that because uh somebody's asked me well matt you talk about self-awareness and you talk about you know with leaders how do you cultivate it how do you instill it i said it's easy i model it i said when i share vulnerability when i share things that are a little shocking like in the book when you read it people keep saying i didn't expect this (laughs) like i didn't expect to open up to the roach motel mom dying i didn't expect the part on you know the divorce whatever i was like well i'm modeling shedding shame And I'm creating vulnerability in people, unless you're a narcissist or a sociopath, those two do not respond to the modeling, right? They don't mirror because again, the mirror doesn't matter, right? They don't even see you, but other humans who are normal, they then reciprocate and they unburden themselves and you could sort of see it. It's also a good proxy when you overshare, otherwise known as TMI.
0: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, if yeah, yeah.
1: If the other person doesn't meet you, but Kurt Cronin in the book talks about how um, this idea of missing conversations that as a seal as a seal commander, his job was to surface the missing conversations because if he didn't bring it out in the public, bring it out in the open, right, life or death is on the line, and the way to surface the missing conversations was to demonstrate that it's okay, right, like what you just said, it's okay to cry in a corner and put your arms around so I don't what you and I are talking about, I don't think is generally known, right like you know you're you know from the military, you're tough, you got your black rifle hat, you know what I mean like I'm supposed uh, yeah, to yeah, yeah, big no, but I'm supposedly a big executive, whatever. Like, but yeah, here we are talking about the thing that matters most, right? And yet so rarely discussed vulnerability and self-awareness.
0: Because it doesn't fit the cookie cutter mold for the big tough guy. Uh, and then yeah. I know you've got the, the concept of toxic masculinity, which, you know, here's how I define toxic masculinity, men abusing what biological strength they have over women and that mm. usually is an indicator that those men, amongst other men, I know amongst my group, are weak, and we'd beat the living shit out of them. But there are cultures that that allow that 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 behavior to 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 go forward. But I, you know, uh, with my son, I remember when he turned five, we started saying a poem. You may have heard this one. I, I fucking love it. Uh, the Prayer of Tecumseh. And it embodies everything I want my son to be as a human being—not a man, but a human being. Live your life so that the fear of death, man, may may never ne- uh, enter your heart. Trouble no one about their religion. Respect others' their views and demand that they respect yours. Love your life. Perfect your life. Beautify all things in your life. Seek to make your life long and of service to your people. Be not like those whose hearts are filled with the fear of death, so that when their time comes, they weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives again in a different way. Sing your death song and die like a hero going home. And he knew that after a few months and it still resonates everything. I would want him to be as a humankind, respect other people and their views, seek to make your life of service to other people, uh, perfect all things, you know, the relentless pursuit of excellence. It's, I, we're not teaching our kids enough of this stuff. Uh, and That's I, right. I and, and, and no hit on teachers, God bless our teachers, but some teachers aren't equipped to get into the attributes of leadership development. I think we're doing a disservice, uh, that way. That's a great poem, man. I talk in my book a lot about um, the, the role that death occupies
1: in my life front and center because post-cancer, I remember once I got to the other side, I was like, why was that an oddly peaceful time for me? And I realized it's because once I got rid of all these worldly concerns that, because they don't hold up against the prospect of imminent death, like the New York Times real estate section or whatever it was, I was like, wait a second, the death is hanging over me every day though, just because I had new data, which is I have cancer. And then I realized, wait, I want to stay here. Because that's actually so liberating. I, I, I you know, what I mean, I'm I'm living my life as if death isn't imminent because it technically is. Just don't know when. And so I have an app on my phone called We Croak, and five times a day it reminds me in different lyrical ways: Descartes, Socrates, whatever. Hey, Matt, you're gonna die. You know, it's almost like whispering in your ear, like you are mortal. Um, and it's incredibly f- effective in bringing me back to the moment. But I love the poem you just read. Like, what a beautiful way to say it, right? So I, I know that I will have won if, when on my deathbed, I'm like, yeah, okay
0: you know? <laughs> when, so when you testicular cancer was that probably one of the biggest mind shifts of your life when you came out of it
1: mindset it, it, i
0: wanted want to be
1: and it took me a bit honestly i would say uh going through my divorce was a bigger one yeah, because yeah. the testicular cancer uh, you know you're pretty honest with yourself i am too right once I wasn't gonna die. It's very treatable. I actually thought it made me a little more exceptional, right? I'm probably the only guy in the world that has a GED, a law degree, and one ball. So I actually made dog tags that I still wear called "Half the Balls, Twice the Man." You know, a <laughs> little nuts. But I, I kind of, I mean, so I, I don't want to lie. I can't stand the inauthenticity. If I, if it wasn't a thing that altered the trajectory, but what it did gives me an insight into the peacefulness of staying present. Because when I had cancer, I was damn present. I didn't go to work for, you know what I mean? I, I, yeah. I you know, I was here. Divorce was a bigger uh, trajectory changing because I realized that my self-esteem was constructed on this identity that I was always great and early at things. He went to high school, college at 16, youngest mayor's press secretary in history, 26, managed 19, you know, 2011. I mean, um, uh, uh, the terrorist attacks and the rebuilding, like I had all these accolades. Then all of a sudden I had a very public, you know, uh, mark of shame, right, that I couldn't couldn't keep things together. And and my my self-worth crumbled. And I was like, wait, it's very dangerous to construct your self-esteem based upon external validators because they can be gone in a second. And I had the closest to an apparition one night where I had the voice in my head. I know this sounds spiritual, but that was just saying, Matthew, you are okay. And it was like at a moment I needed it. And, and ever since I was started saying, like, I am actually technically okay, even if I have nothing because I was born whole. So that, was, that to me was a trajectory changing event more so than cancer. Cancer wasn't a lesson, if I'm being honest
0: when When you wrote this book, I'm sure there's one prime example in your life that you had to you had to burn those boats um, yeah. have you already shared it or or, or possibly no no, I haven't no I people. haven't I don't, we didn't okay. really get
1: much into it, but just to shorten the story a bit um when I was taking care of my 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 uh, my mother right when you're a little kid, no one wants to really take care of a parent. And I was put in that sort of uh, role of being parentified and the hero child. And, you know, there's a lot on me. And I started selling flowers on street corners when I was 10 years old. No exaggeration. Just working at McDonald's, scraping gum under tables. Used to sell handbags at, at the flea market. But then the same externally, though, I was wearing fancy designer jeans. Anything that I could sort of hide what I was dealing with. So, we're, so on the one hand, I have a mother who's slowly succumbing to illness, trying to fight for her education. And on the flip side, I'm trying to conceal that shame from the world. Never had a single kid over my house or a girl until I was until my mother died when I was 26. So I had this life of shame, and then you eventually get so despondent you realize the cavalry's not coming. I got to take matters into my own hands. A little bit of that sort of uh, you know uh, uh, Alexander the Great, you know Cortez moments when you're like, all right, how am I going to win? And I serve in my environment. It's all you got. Okay, what what can I do to get out of here? And I read an ad in the newspaper, and it said uh, you know deliver flyers eight bucks an hour college students only and i remember thinking wait i'm making 375 mcdonald's but if i can become this thing called a college student like i could suddenly you know increase my comp yeah yeah Yeah. and i watched my mom trying to fight for her dignity get her gd as a 38 year old woman and enroll in queen's college and this around seventh eighth grade i said wait a second why don't i just drop out of high school i'll just become a high school dropout but i'll get into college a lot faster." this is like the craziest heresy that you could tell a guidance counselor. So here I was this well-spoken look, you know, polished kid. And I'm like, Oh, I'm going to drop out. And I was like, what are you? And then I had so much pressure to, you know, submit to conventional thinking I had my burn the boats epiphany. I said, I need to give myself no ability to go to, to turn around. I need to become a write-off to the system that I'm just such a hopeless case that everyone will leave me alone and let me execute. So I used to get picked up by the truancy police I got left back deliberately for two years in a row. I failed every single class. So finally, they were like, let's just get this kid out and transfer him to another program. I dropped out when I was 16 years old. I enrolled in college and I went to my high school prom as uh, president of my debate team. And I remember the look in my teacher's eyes at that moment. It went from a degree of pity and, and a degree of derision to admiration and respect. And so. That was my burn the boats moment that did two things. One, it's only screw conventional wisdom. When people don't have the context of your life because you're hiding it, or they don't know any better, their, their inputs are actually very corrosive. So you have to trust your own instincts. All these judgments came from Matt Higgins, not from, a, from the internet. There was no internet. But number, and, and number two, compounding. The sooner you act and take agency and custody of your life, the more time you have to reach the exponential returns. It's a little bit like what Warren Buffett says about compounding with money. I started college two years earlier. That's the reason why a decade later I'm press secretary to the mayor of New York. I went from three seventy-five an hour at McDonald's to one hundred and five thousand dollars a year. Unfortunately, my mother dies that morning, you know, in our in our dirty little apartment. Proof that the cavalry isn't coming. But you know, all those decisions are wrapped up in this book. That is, those are the single most important things that ever happened to me. Was dropping out of high school. Parents, close your ears. Don't let your kids listen to this interview. Yeah, it,
0: it, <laughs> seriously. Uh, well, Matt, I'm, I'm both uh, saddened that you had to go through that at such Thank a you. a young age, but I'm also happy for you in the sense that you had such an epiphany so early on in your life that has clearly led you down a certain path. And, and for those that don't know, and this one's big to me, man, um, you know, if you've got wisdom one of the worst things you can do. And even though, you know, we've talked about impersonator syndrome if I, I, man, I'm the product of some great mentors and peers, uh, usually who were my, my colleagues, not the hierarchical mentors. And I learned so much for them is, is you've got to share that wisdom. If not, it's an injustice, but Matt was, uh, the Ellis Island medal of honor recipient, which the list is low and that ward recognizes individuals who have made it their mission to share the, their wealth of knowledge, courage, compassion, unique talents and selfless generosity uh, with those with, uh, less fortune. And, and you have done that, sir. And this book, um, did, did you do the audiobook? I did. I did it myself. Okay. Yeah.
1: I asked Adam, okay. Adam Grant, Adam Grant. I said, should I do my audio book? It's, it's like one of the biggest regrets is I didn't do my first one myself and you all 100% should do it. So I did it.
0: Good. Okay. Then that is what I'm going to go purchase. And I can't wait to, uh, to listen to this thing. Um, there isn't a book you can't learn from if you keep an open growth mindset. Uh, and I've definitely know given your background and your experience, there's, there's a whole lot more than one thing I'm going to learn. Um, Matt, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us. Please go purchase the book. Uh, it's on Amazon right now. It was, it was released last week or or this week.
1: I guess released when, when this interview airs on February 14th, Valentine's day, the gift of love. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So it's, it's right around the corner. Um, which thank you for the reminder on uh, Valentine's day. And guys, if you haven't remembered when this comes out, it's too late. You're screwed. Uh, you're not going to find a, uh, uh, an open reservation on resi or uh, open table or whatever uh, app you use. You're you fucked. Sorry. You know, I, do Matt, think I think you do think your wife would like it though. I yeah. didn't to appeal to anybody. It's not a macho Good. book. Yep. Good. Well, uh, Matt can't thank you enough, man. Would love to uh, continue uh, staying in touch with you and please send my best to Kirk Cronin for all those. Thank you for joining us. This has been the men's journal everyday warrior podcast. I'm your host, Mike's Sorelli, And again, we've had Matt Higgins who you can learn a whole lot from. All right. Wish you the best guys. See you next time.